From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It is late at night on June 17, 1972, as 24-year-old security guard Frank Wills makes his midnight rounds at the Watergate Hotel and Office Complex here in the Foggy Bottom neighborhood of downtown Washington, D.C. Somewhere on level B2, Wills finds that a door easily pushes open without twisting its handle. Paper has been stuffed into the latch. Wills removes the paper, closes the door, and continues his rounds. But he soon finds tape covering the latches of other doors, leading from the underground parking structure to the offices. He mutters to himself quietly. He'll need to have a word with maintenance. At 12.30 a.m., he cuts the lights out in the hall. But circling back an hour or so later, Wills is startled to discover that the door latches he'd stripped of tape are once again covered. He immediately notifies the police. Someone is inside the building. Hello all, and glad to be here with you. Thanks for listening in. In the sweeping history of American politics, there is a litany of scandals. Presidential, congressional, judicial each in its own fashion emblematic of our past, but largely consigned to the history books. This is not the case with Watergate. Though it happened more than 50 years ago, what went on during those two and a half torturous years, 1972 to 1975, left a bone bruise on American society, and we are still limping it off today. From the botched burglary to the political cover-up to the first and only pardoning of an American president, it is the scandal that changed America, or at least how Americans viewed their government, their media, and their presidents. If you mean to understand modern U.S. politics, our present controversies and scandals, it is vital that you understand Watergate, the granddaddy of them all. So let's get to it with Dr. Catherine Brownell, professor of history at Purdue University, author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America. Hello, Professor. Greetings, Katie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Katie, the term Watergate refers directly to the break-in in Washington, D.C. at the Watergate Hotel, June 1972. It is inclusive of that crime and its convictions, but also the cover-up and the huge matters afterwards, the televised hearings, the struggles between the courts and so forth. It is rife with rabbit holes. So let's first lay out the initial events as they happened, and then we'll move on to the larger developments afterwards, okay? Absolutely. All right. So it's summer, June 1972, June 17th to be exact. We're less than five months out from Election Day, Richard Nixon against George McGovern. What happens that night at the Watergate Hotel? 
Well, it's, you know, a botched burglary that you have members. Uh, there's one member of the committee to reelect the president, which that committee, again, goes by the name Creep. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and there's one member that's on the committee that's part of this burglary. So it's just a botched burglary. And it's something that people don't really take notice of. The break-in is to the headquarters of the DNC, the chairman of the DNC, his office. And it's, you know, again, it doesn't really cause much of a scene at first. People don't really pay attention to it. The banality of this moment is really ironic. As you say, offices of the Democratic National Committee. This is the group that's running the Democratic Party, basically. The convention is coming about, what, a month later or something like that, maybe a month or two later. And so they haven't actually nominated George McGovern, but we're getting close to the big run up to the presidential election then. Five guys are arrested in this office. Interestingly, years ago, I'd met the actual detective, one of those guys who came in. It was a young guy in the day. It was just sort of the bum squad, they called it. They were doing sort of vice squad stuff. And somebody called and said, there's these guys that they've seen in there. Katie, explain to me what they were doing in that place. I mean, what was the crime? Well, it was Larry O'Brien's office, uh, who is the head of the Democratic National Committee. And so they were looking to uh, put a bug in the phones and to gather information on the Democratic strategy for the upcoming campaign. They caught them famously because they had taped the door shut, right? How did that work? Well, again, it's a very minor thing that kind of just goes to show how regular these types of break-ins, these efforts to illegally acquire information were as part of the broader committee to reelect the president, as part of the broader Nixon administration. Some were directly ordered by him, some were not. But it was kind of part of that culture of just finding information on opponents in any way necessary. So these five guys, interestingly, Katie, were, I'm going to name the names, Virgilio Gonzalez, Bernard Barker, James McCord, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Surges. Four of these guys were known as Cuban freedom fighters. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's an official characterization, but they came from a kind of shady background. They are a crew that's part of an operation that's been going on for a long time. You've mentioned it already, CREEP, Committee to Reelect the President. It was an official acronym, really, although it sounds like you make it up for the movies. These guys are doing all kinds of dirty tricks throughout the campaign and maybe before. This is what will emerge over time, this sort of normal behavior of the Nixon presidency. They were in charge of dirty tricks like what? What was going on with this? Oh, so many different types of things. And that's one of the things that I think is so essential to understanding CREEP as this organization is that this is the committee that is in charge of shaping the narrative around Richard Nixon's reelection. And so their goal is to try to find any positive things that they can spin. It's really a media operation. It's a spin operation that they're trying to find information that puts the president in a favorable light. But then they're also trying to do anything possible to put opponents in a negative light, whether it's organizing fake rallies or circulating fake memos and letters, anything to embarrass his opponents and people that he wanted to take down through a negative image. So again, thinking that this image-making apparatus is really at the central of this because, you know, one of the things that I've really looked at a lot in depth in my research is how central this obsession with image was for Richard Nixon. And he firmly believed 
believed that a negative image for his opponents and a positive image for him was all that really mattered in securing political power and winning elections. It's amazing. The, the psychology of Richard Nixon overwhelms this story. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you know, the whole history of this real. It's an amazing thing. It's I mean, I guess that's true of all presidents in one way or another. But Richard Nixon really takes the cake in this department. I'm of an age where, you know, we spent decades analyzing this man, even to the present, really. And it's an extraordinary story. I want to stay with Creep for a little bit. The figures behind Creep are important. Names like Charles Colson. E. Howard Hunt, Gordon Liddy. These are infamous names in modern American history. Some go on to sort of legitimize themselves. Even Nixon does, for that matter. But, Katie, the personalities behind Creep are shady and dark. (laughs) It's what will come out all through the Senate hearings. This kind of everyone is jaw dropped on how manipulative these people are, how sort of conspiratorial they view governance and certainly election hearing. One name stands out for me, Charles Colson. Tell me about this guy. He's one of the heads of this whole operation, isn't he? Yeah, so Charles Colson is someone who really is controlling the strings, who's making a lot of these orders for some of these break-ins, some of this illegal activity, or just some, maybe it's not illegal, but very unethical and very, like you said, dark and conspiratorial. And, and Colson is so interesting because he is someone that has Richard Nixon's ear. Nixon pays attention to him. And so when there's a lot of historical debates about how much Nixon knew about the extent of these operations, knowing the close relationship between Colson and Nixon makes it very probable that Nixon had a very good idea of everything that was going on. The tapes have actually shown, you know, going through the tapes, it really shows that Nixon is deeply aware. And he and Colson are thinking constantly about ways to target their enemies. And so Nixon very famously has this enemies list and Colson is his his number one guy to go after his enemies. And the descriptions by Nixon's inner circle of Colson are very dark and involve a lot of profanities because even they recognize that he was this evil genius. They called him that. Like, you know, these are their words. And, and he really does embolden Nixon's worst impulses. He taps into Nixon's conspiratorial thinking. He taps into his dark impulses to get revenge. He feeds that negativity and then really uses that Nixon's then the authority that he gives him to pursue that to then kind of raise his ranks within the Nixon administration and pursue all of these different operations. So if I'm understanding what you're saying, really that break in June 17th, 1972 is just a tip of an iceberg of stuff that had been going on for a long time was quite ordinary. In fact, the routine quality of it is probably what got them caught because there was a laxness to it. They famously, you know, taped the door twice, not thinking that a night watchman could see that and obviously know that somebody was breaking in. And that would have been just par for the course for these guys. And it was that sort of laziness that gets them caught. We're going to get to Nixon in a moment. That's a deep dive on him. But I just want to nail down the the events as we're talking about. After the arrest happens, we're talking about a couple of months before everything kind of shakes itself out. This is when all the famous journalism that is for another conversation happens in which, you know, follow the money begins and this whole sort of investigation outside the normal lines begins And it clearly is part of a larger conspiracy. But at the beginning, you have these five guys. 
who all sort of become just regular crooks who are under, uh, you know, get arrested and then they have to be arraigned and so forth. All of that gets to be watched. The news media starts paying attention in ways that are unique and different. And that's another story for another time. But that's kind of where we're at in those first six months. So let's talk about Nixon here. Where did this darkness of him start? Is it his normal personality or had he kind of evolved into this guy? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of debate among historians about this. And, you know, there are some people that have kind of taken this psychological analysis of Nixon. For me, I've studied Richard Nixon extensively. I have looked at his archives. I've seen his political thinking progress over time. And for me, I truly think that Nixon's darker impulses and his willing to do anything to win really comes out of his experiences with the 1960 election. And and especially the ways in which he puts this effort, this apparatus to control his image and to attack the image of his perceived enemies at the center of how he thinks about political power, how he thinks about governing, how he thinks about elections, all of that. And so the 1960 election, you know, he goes head to head. Uh, At the time, he's vice president. He's a very well-respected figure within the Republican Party. He easily gets the nomination. There's a little reluctance with Eisenhower's support, but he comes along. And so he faces off against John F. Kennedy. And, you know, it's really interesting to watch both of their images that they put forward. Uh, Nixon is very careful with his image. I think there's a misperception with the 1960 election that Nixon didn't care about his image because of his performance in the television debates. But that is completely completely untrue because he deeply cared about his image. But he thought that by projecting this very serious statesmanlike image, that that would stand in counter to the image he was trying to portray Kennedy as, as someone who is just about style and celebrity and fluff. And so he wanted to show he was about substance, not style. And ultimately, that fails. And I mean, he loses the election. He loses it for many reasons that have nothing to do with his TV image. But in Richard Nixon's mind in the aftermath of that. And then two years later, when he loses the California governor's race in 1962, he firmly blames everything on the media and and people always trying to attack him, to try to bring him down personally. It's not the content of what he was going to deliver. It's this superficial style that people, you know, and it, it does it's really an attack on things that don't matter in politics. Well, his thinking in the aftermath of this turns everything about style and media into what he sees as what really matters. And he becomes obsessed with controlling this. There's an obsession that's really there in 1968. And, and you could even just look at the advertisements, the shift in advertisements from 1960 to 1968. There's this amazing website called The Living Room Candidate where you can just click on these advertisements and you can see it. There is an obsession with his image that is clearly on play in 1968. And this reflects his transformation into someone who just thinks that everything with political power has to do with controlling media messages. Um, And I think that makes him, again, more obsessed with that, more conspiratorial as well. I want to take exception to one aspect of what you're saying. Richard Nixon was a rocket ship of a politician. I mean, let's be clear about this. The, The man comes back from war service, World War II, and just rides this thing through the House of Representatives to the Senate, 
straight to vice president, all in one decade. I mean, this guy was amazing in terms of the accomplishments of what he did as, as a politician. He's the right wing counter to all the wonders about Eisenhower. He sort of balances that ticket with California. He gives, you know, he's a very, very powerful presence on the American political scene. Everyone kind of looks at John Kennedy and how handsome he is and his cool, calm demeanor with the camera versus Nixon's sweaty lip and so forth. But I suspect Nixon thought he was had it all sewed up. You know, he had already done what he needed to do to prove himself. He has the resume. And then comes this whole new America. You know, you've got the 1960s. You've got a whole different aesthetic. A baby boom generation is coming of age, at least, you know, in colleges and so forth. They have different expectations. That's this confluence of events that happens to Richard Nixon. I think that has a lot to do with it. The psychology of it comes into play later on, but I suspect that that's not paid enough attention to. That he's like, I just did everything I needed to do, and now I can't be president? You know, it's a close election. He almost does it. I don't disagree. And I think that, you know, he's someone that has these qualifications, you know, his resume compared to Kennedy's resume. Right. I mean, and it's not actually only Nixon that is kind of shocked that Kennedy gets the nomination. Someone with a better resume than both of them thought that he was going to be president in 1960. And that's Lyndon Johnson. And he ends up as the VP on the ticket. You know, he really thought he had that in the bag, the nomination and perhaps even the presidency. So it's not just Richard Nixon. I think you're right that Kennedy really, even though he and Nixon are about the same age, they represent two very different political styles. And Kennedy's was very controversial. And I think that's one thing that we also kind of forget because we see the arc of history that this celebrity style that Kennedy brought forward has become the status quo, that has become the normal. But that is a historical process. And indeed, I would argue that Richard Nixon plays a central role in making Kennedy's style central to to how we think about politics and how we think about political power. Because Nixon firmly believed this, and he then reshaped his entire campaign in 1968, his entire approach to governing, to follow in what he saw as successful with Kennedy in 1960. Well, and just to put a pin in this process, he goes home after losing the presidential and loses the governor's race in California. Of course. That's when he gets really bitter. Like, that's his own state. Yeah. And that's when he famously says, you don't have me to kick around anymore. Exactly. And that's the press saying, oh, go away. You know, like he's put a nail in his coffin after that election. You know, what's interesting if you read the longer statement, because, of course, that you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore is so famous or infamous, I should say. But the longer statement, he's actually arguing that the reason he lost, he says very explicitly that he loses because the media didn't give enough attention to his campaign, that they paid more attention to his opponent. So again, this obsession with media is starting to grow. And I think it becomes really intensified in the aftermath of that electoral loss. So this is the irony. You know, he wins the election in 68. There's a lot of events to talk about in that time frame. But when he's running for re-election, he's doing very well. In the summer of 1972, it is clear to everybody who knows anything. I remember I was a fifth grader, I believe. And even I remember how, oh, obviously Nixon's going to win. This is not apparently clear to Nixon because who in their right mind would be okaying these things, as we find out he did, if you were in such a strong position? Why do this? 
Again, I think it's because he knew he was in a strong position. He also knew the Democratic Party was in deep disarray. So I think there are a variety of different strategies that are at play. Number one, he really wanted to tap into and intensify the discord in the Democratic Party. He's thinking long term about political realignment for the Republican Party, about building, you know, a new conservative majority, you know, tapping into those frustrated elements of the Democratic Party and thinking about ways that he could bring them into the Republican Party. So he's thinking long term about party politics and really hoping to intensify that. Again, the Democratic Party is very divided at this time. Uh, there are you know over a dozen people who are running for the nomination. They've just changed their nominating processes. And so he's trying to intensify that discord. And I think that's one reason. But I also think that he wanted to, you know, he barely squeaked out the 1968 election and he wanted to make a stamp that, you know, he wanted that mandate, that electoral mandate. He wanted to sweep the country. It probably killed him that, you know, Massachusetts was the only state <laughs> that he doesn't win. The home of Kennedy's, of course. But but I think that he just, he really felt that because of the defeat he had experienced, because of the close election in 68, that he wanted to put his mark on it to show that he was the definitive winner. Interesting. And he was completely on his way to that. That's what's incredible. Exactly. And I mean, his campaign operations were incredibly sophisticated. He has this well-mobilized youth organization really designed to get 18 to 21 voters who are new to the scene. I mean, he's really, his campaign operations were incredibly well-organized and it showed. I mean, these guys who are presidents have always been idiosyncratic personalities and we read them like books, but Nixon was peculiar. He had a very awkward personality and you could feel it in the way that he presented himself on camera. He just sort of looked like he was uncomfortable in many situations. Very famously, he wore his dress shoes on the beach, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> even though he lived, you know, on the beach at San Clemente. And, you know, <laughs> he had this whole persona, which was really not not cool. And it's at a time when cool really matters in the media. So you can only imagine how he was being driven a little crazy. He's always watching how people are seeing him and they're not seeing him well. So this might have something to do with it. I have no idea. I really go back to my other point, which is I think they got lazy. This was sort of the normal way that they had achieved a great deal of power, perhaps. Who knows how much else had happened? But this was just par for the course and they blew it. And so in blowing it becomes the rest of this story. At what point do we move past simple burglary, questions about money, to, oh my God, this is the presidency we're talking about here? It takes a while. And I, I, that's why I actually think the Senate Watergate hearings are so significant, because it puts on display for the entire country, you know, even beyond uh, the world, to see what is going on? And it shows that it's not about this one incident, that it's about this broader pattern of behavior, of corruption, of these dirty tricks, right, that may not be necessarily illegal, but seem to be beneath the dignity of how the president should be operating it becomes very clear. This abuse of power from the IRS to the Justice Department that's going on. And so I think that's why the hearings are so significant, because it makes clear the bigger picture. Even though the bigger picture had yet to fully be exposed, it made clear that there's something going on with the presidency. And this likely goes all the way to the top.
I'll be back with more American history after this short break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Let's define these hearings, because I can attest, uh, those of us who were alive at the time had never seen anything like it. I mean, you may have seen McCarthy hearings and so forth. Those were earlier days of television. Now we're deep into, you know, the maturity of television. And and yet this is a really shocking thing to see. It's in the Senate and not the House. It's not officially about impeachment. You know, all these things that we're sort of used to hearing about now, they weren't the case. And this is what makes it such an exceptional situation. When did the hearings begin? Yeah, so the televised hearings begin in May of 1973. And you're right, they're actually called, the official title for them is the Senate Hearings on Campaign Activities, right? So it's not, it's not about impeachment. No one thought that impeachment was really going to come out of this. Again, remember, Nixon had won a huge mandate in 72. And that continued to be why so many members of Congress were reluctant to even discuss impeachment impeachment initially because the voters overwhelmingly chose Nixon. And so it just begins an investigation into um, campaign activities. And so it begins in May. And initially, all three networks, the first five days, all three networks covered these hearings. And so that means that if you are tuning on, this is way before cable television. This is when, when you turned on the TV, you likely only had three or four channels. And three of these channels were the main networks. And one might have been public television or perhaps an independent one. So very limited viewing. And the first five days, the networks cover them nonstop. And then eventually they rotate coverage. So always during the day, there are hearings that people can tune into. Perhaps more significantly at night, public television, which had just really gotten going uh, in a couple years earlier, they would replay the hearings in the evening. And so if you work during the day, you still got to watch the hearings. And people did. So it really becomes, as they unfold over the course of the summer, it becomes a television sensation. People are glued. It is really an unprecedented type of hearing. For anybody who's young, uh, take the fairly recent impeachment hearings, you know, the Adam Schiff's and those people, and just blow it up. I mean, it was a hundred times more compelling, more controversial, more blockbuster than anything we saw in recent years. And you mentioned a very important fact. The idea of impeachment was anathema to Americans. That was that was something that just didn't happen. I mean, I can't even remember what Andrew Johnson, perhaps that was mm-hmm. the last one before that. I mean, it was really, really bad news. Nowadays, we've unfortunately gotten more used to the idea as being something you can survive. 
But in Nixon's time, that was not good. And he didn't want to go down as that type of president. Exactly. And I would also add that at the time when this investigation starts, you have Spiro Agnew as president. And so the idea of elevating Spiro Agnew, who, again, really was a person that pursued and emboldened some of Nixon's darker impulses, was also this is not something that people want to consider as well. There's so many details within the hearing record that it demands a podcast on its own. You really can't go. We would spend hours talking about John Dean, Jeb Magruder, all the different personalities that slowly but surely reveal themselves in testimony. People you'd never even hear of or think about in American life suddenly become media stars because they are just talking about something that we've never known existed. And I want to say this very clearly. What Nixon is being blamed for or suspected of at this point has happened for a long time in American politics. I mean, presidents have done bad things before. You know, we've had plenty of shady activities, I'm sure of it. You know, FDR was famous for pulling strings behind people's backs, all this stuff. It's the fact that they got caught and it's the reveal of this presidential character that becomes more the story than the actual crime. Because what happens is the cover-up far outweighs the crime in terms of how this unspools. So at what point do we know that this is the case? Is sort of everybody goes, huh, what's this? Is it the tapes? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the tapes because you're right. Until there is a recognition of the tapes that comes out on Alexander Butterfield has just in a normal testimony is just saying, well, check the tapes, check the recording system. And all of a sudden this is a, a bombshell. Uh, but before that, it's just someone like John Dean who is cooperating with the investigation. And so there's a question about, you know, his intentions, right? What kind of deal did he get, right? There's kind of this dark air over the credibility of his stories. But before that, it's just John Dean saying, this is what happened. This is how we used to bug phones. And again, this is really compelling for people. They can't believe it. It almost seems unbelievable. And so it's his testimony and Nixon and his top figure saying, no, that didn't happen. So it was just a he said, he said moment at that. But it's not until the tapes that you get into, wow, what John Dean said happened actually happened. And you can hear Nixon ordering the cover up of everything as well. Katie, we are tossing around the term the tapes. This is an actual recording system that Nixon has set up to record all of the conversations that happen in the office and also his phone conversations. Was it the first time that it was recognized that a president was taping his own proceedings in office or was this really the first time? That's a good question in terms of public knowledge of the taping system. And I'm not quite sure what public knowledge was, but presidents before him did tape. Actually, the presidential recordings, there are some under John F. Kennedy, a lot under Lyndon Johnson, a lot. They are incredibly rich as an archival source. And so there's just an extensive taping system that is expanded under Lyndon Johnson. And then Richard Nixon takes it a step further. You know, he has things like, you know, when people would start speaking, they'd automatically start taping. So he didn't have to press the tape, right? It would just automatically come on. So he expands the taping system. 
And there are a lot of speculations about why he does this. There are two that I think that I kind of see having studied Richard Nixon. And one is that, again, he constantly thought that journalists were trying to manipulate his words, trying to, you know, again, undermine his messaging so that he wanted a record of what he actually said. Right. So that if a journalist said something, he'd be like, no, that's not what I said. It could call out these biases that he thought were just embedded within media coverage of him. The second is that he wanted them for his memoirs to kind of help write his memoirs in the aftermath. You know, Nixon is someone who grows up very poor, really struggles with money his entire political career, and that he wanted to be able to cash in on his memoirs in the aftermath of his presidency. But nevertheless, regardless, and I'm sure it's perhaps a combination of a variety of factors, but the result is that he dramatically expands the taping system. And that ultimately is his downfall. As normal as it may have been to have a recording system, what this inevitably implies is that we're going to have the crime recorded. I mean, we're going to hear these things. There's going to be a smoking gun here, right? Exactly. In the tapes, he acknowledges uh, what has happened and he talks about the cover up and he shows that he's directly involved in this cover up. Right. Which is why he's fought so hard for these tapes to not be uh, handed over claiming his own presidential privilege in this, but in fact, he knows it's going to prove he's guilty. Exactly. And it shows that everything that John Dean had said that, you know, he denied was actually true. It becomes a question of who controls these tapes, which grows into a larger, much larger question about executive privilege and the power of the presidency. One can assume that from the moment that his particular taping technology was installed, Nixon assumed that those tapes were his personal property. Absolutely. That this was all going to be his own thing. I can understand that. I mean, except for the fact that we now know that everything that happens inside that structure belongs to the American people. Well, now now it's clear, but at the time it was not clear. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is what will transpire is the struggle that goes on forever. Oh, my God, I remember it was just like... Every night, if not every month, you're just like another step in the process of John Sirica, you know, the judge ordering the tapes have to be turned over and then there's a fight to the end. Now we know how this all plays out because news coverage is 24-7, as your book says, and we kind of are more familiar with these things for better or worse. In those days, you weren't. You didn't really know that much about what was happening inside the White House. And therefore, we sort of took things at face value. All that goes away. The reaction to these tapes, I remember how this went. First of all, oh, my God, there was the system. And what are we going to learn from it? But then the aftermath, it reminds me when the Mueller report comes out, the antecedent to the Mueller report were the Nixon tapes. You know, this this sort of they printed them. It came out as in a book form. We could read all this expletive deleted became a very famous reference because they had chosen to do everything, but also delete all of his bad words, and he uses a lot of bad words. It was this sort of glimpse into this real life of Richard Nixon. How would you define the reaction to these tapes nationally? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because... I think what shocked so many people are kind of the ways that Nixon talked about them, um, about different demographics, all of the profanities. And so I think that there are levels of shock, right, that there are these big issues in terms of, you know, he's ordering cover ups. He's aware of these illegal activities, but also that here is our president that is speaking in a very crass and derogatory ways about American citizens. Uh, that's very different from how he spoke in public. And I think the 
so I think in a variety of ways it shocks people. It fit right into that which we were discussing before, this weird persona. Like we could never really knew who the guy was because he was working so hard to sort of be something he wasn't. And suddenly you see him where he really sits in life. You know, like you see his real personality suddenly and it was like, oh my Lord, he is a crass guy. And for someone that had tried so hard to control his image, too, right, that he worked so diligently, then it all kind of just imploded with these tapes. So over this period, now we're talking about 73 to 75. It really happened. The hot stuff is in 73. Things go really south for Nixon in 74. Is it all the hearings or is there a whole judicial process going on as well? Oh, I think that this is an example. Watergate is an example of different governing institutions playing their role and holding the presidency accountable. So you've got Congress that's stepping up. First, you've got the Senate that is, you know, investigating it. Later, the House of Representatives begin the process of impeachment. Although it doesn't formally go through, they begin this conversation about it. So Congress plays its role in holding the president accountable. The courts, right? Um, early on, decisions from the arraignment of the burglars to this debate about the tapes that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The courts play a central role in making some of these decisions. And again, this checks and balances you really see play out. One of the other things that you see, there's this incredible new biography by J. Edgar Hoover by Beverly Gage. It just won the Pulitzer Prize for biography. And she makes such a compelling role about how the FBI played a role. And it's really significant that Nixon is trying to manipulate the FBI. Um, the FBI was completely comfortable surveilling Americans, but they felt that that should be their control and not used for these partisan purposes. And so it's significant that the leak to the Washington Post reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, was the number two person at the FBI who was really frustrated, Mark Felt, who felt that Nixon's attempt to politicize the FBI just violated its function as a bureaucracy. And then, of course, you have the media. Uh, you know, you've got the two journalists, Woodward and Bernstein, who are following the story, but it's not just them. It's a variety of other journalists that are paying attention to. It's the networks, the television networks that are stepping up to cover the hearings. It's public television that is also stepping up to cover the hearings and replay them in the evening. So you've got all of these different political institutions that step up and play a role to hold the president accountable. It's the summer of 1974. Come June, July of that time, does Nixon still think he's going to get away with this? You know, it's interesting. You've got already discussions of impeachment happening in the House of Representatives in May. In July, the Supreme Court makes the final decision on the tapes and that they will be released. And then you finally have Republicans, very famously, who go to Nixon and say that they're going to support impeachment if he does not resign. They push him to resign. And so, again, I think that's another really significant factor. It's hard to not talk about this, thinking about the 21st century. Century. But I think it's a significant factor that Republicans, people that were Nixon's strongest supporters, people like Barry Goldwater, very conservative Republicans, they said, this is enough. You need to leave office. And Republicans stood up to Nixon as well. And this is something, again, that newer scholarship has shown that it's really significant along the way that Republicans are the ones that are saying, no, we're not going to go along with this. No, this is not OK. And they took a stand as well. Partisanship did not trump their loyalty to you know their constitutional obligations. Sure. 
this becomes a defining issue of one of the central ideas of the Constitution, that there is this checks and balances system that we have baked into our lives, into our governance, that really does matter and really does happen. <laughs> you know, when, it, when the chips are on the table, this is really what goes on. And that's that meeting. That's Goldwater and a few other of those old guard Republicans coming to their friend, you know, someone they used to serve with in the Congress, saying to him as president, this has gone too far. You're not going to make it through this. Take the graceful way out. And that becomes his famous speech from the Oval Office expressing that, you know, for the betterment of the country, for the greater good, he will step aside. In the process, I mean, so much has gone on from Agnew resigning to Ford becoming the new vice president. There's a whole chess game that plays out, which to this day, we really don't know. Well, I mean, the memoirs have been written and so forth, but we don't really know what happened as far as any kind of deal between Ford coming in and agreeing to pardon. I mean, it's been written about, but we we still don't really know. Yeah, and I think that's why Watergate still has captivated American memory, as uh, the memory of American history so much. It still resonates because there's so much that we know. There's so much evidence out there, especially with the tapes. But then there's a lot that is unknown, and there are a lot of people pieces of the puzzle that are not entirely clear how they go together. And I think that's why it continues to be a moment of fascination. Sure. He resigns, Ford takes over as president, only serves out that term, does not get reelected. And so American history goes forward. It's an amazing episode that really has resonance today. And that's why I opened this show by saying, if you're going to understand today, you have to understand this period of time. I want to talk just briefly with you, Katie, because you've written this book 24-7 about the fragmentation of media. This has so much to do with it. Nixon, in general, is a sort of wedge issue in himself in American society that has a, an enormous effect, if on nothing else, and there was a lot of other things, on media. Would you root today's fragmented media in this episode of history? Yes. <laughs> I think it's, of course, much more complicated. But I do think there's a reason that the subtitle of my book is, even though the marketing team came up with it, it does capture the argument, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. And, and there are so many elements about our current media landscape that were introduced during the Nixon administration and became intensified after Watergate. And I think one of the key aspects has to go back again to those television hearings that you've got someone like Nixon who makes controlling his TV image central to how he sees political power. And then you've got Congress. Uh, the Senate comes in and uses TV as a way to elevate and to hold their status and to hold the president accountable. And there is this idea that emerges in the aftermath of Watergate is that Okay, TV can bring transparency, it can help fulfill democracy, right? And bring responsible citizenship. And that thinking then causes, you know, Congress to investigate ways to bring TV cameras. And again, it's all about power, right? The presidency has too much power because all the TV cameras are pointed at what the president says. He has this bully pulpit that no one can really counter. And so there's all of these efforts to find other ways, other types of mediums 
things. And cable TV really comes in as an alternative to broadcasting, which had elevated the presidency so much, as a way to give other voices an opportunity to shape political narratives and to gain political power. But, you know, the interesting thing about cable is it's decentralizing. It's not a consolidated monopoly that the television networks were with the big three. Cable really breaks down the gatekeeping and it allows so many more people paths to pursue power via TV. And this in many ways was what Nixon had envisioned. It's really interesting that the expansion of cable begins under Nixon because he sees it as a way to decentralize media. And he thinks that that is a good thing because giving the TV networks too much power, that was why he had so many of the network journalists and the anchors on his enemies list. He wanted to break their power. So he really wanted this decentralized media environment where individual politicians could control their image much more effectively and have more access to TV. The other irony and important fact of this is that for much of America, everything was going so well. That's how they felt. That's why they reelected this man in a landslide in November of 1972. I don't think we've clearly said this. 49 states the man won. 49. It's a huge, uh, maybe to this day, I don't know, the largest landslide? I'm not sure. But it was an enormous referendum on this man, on his career, on his presidency. So suddenly, inside of two years, the whole thing goes kaput. And all those people who voted for him, or at least a huge sector of them, are left wanting at that point, saying, wait a minute, the America we had that we voted for suddenly went away. And they look for people to blame, and a lot of people blame the media. And that was a real dynamic in American society that carries on to this day. And media has stepped up to sort of address that in a commercialized version and saying, oh, come over here. We have what you need. And oh, come over here. We have what you need. And that whole sort of hodgepodge of American news media arises right out of this this dynamic, I think. Well, and I think that's also important to remember that there are a lot of people that did not vote in the 1972 election that were very frustrated by the choice that they had in candidates, were very disenchanted with the political system. I mean, Nixon wins a youth vote in 72, and that's because so many people, millions of people, 17 to 21, that were newly empowered to vote had lost faith in the political system. So it's not that everyone loved Nixon in 72. It's a a majority of the people who voted, voted for him. But there was a lot of, especially on the left, uh, there are a lot of people that had just lost a lot of faith in political institutions as well. And they're also looking for new outlets, new sources of community. And so it's really interesting that even, you know, many of them on like the progressive and countercultural left, you know, they actually find cable television as an opportunity for them as well. But it's actually Nixon's vision of cable that takes root. Yeah. And the Home Shopping Network, of course. (laughs) Dr. Catherine Brunel is a professor of history at Purdue University, and I recommend her book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Katie, we have to have you back later and talk about that very dynamic. I'm really interested in that. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sound.
Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.